One of the things I am continually amazed with the longer I live and the more I study the Bible is the timing of God. It is remarkable when you read through Scripture how often you see the timing of God coming into play with the stories that we read. And so often we talk about the fact that we are impatient, we struggle with those things. The book of Isaiah chapter 40 ends with that famous verse about waiting on the Lord. And I don't know about you, that's a beautiful verse, but it's a difficult concept. Because I don't like waiting, and not many of us do. We live in a culture that makes it we don't want to wait for anything. Everything is instant. I was hearing someone talk just the other day, and they were talking about upgrading their their tablet. And someone asked them if they had upgraded to the faster processor, and they said, to save what, 18 hundredths of a second? What difference does it really make? And that seems to be the way it is. If it's it's not just tenths of a second faster, then we don't like it anymore. And I mention that because our study this morning deals with time. Last week, we began a look at the story of the Bible. We started in... The Old Testament. And we looked at the story of the Old Testament because in 2016, our theme is strengthening our roots, knowing God through His Word. And to help us do that, we began by, we're beginning by just overviewing the story of the Bible. And so it makes sense then to go from the Old Testament very naturally to the New Testament, if we think about it. But in virtually every copy of the Bible I have ever seen or held, and probably what you have in front of you as well, between the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, there is a page that's blank. Or maybe it just has the words, the New Testament, or something along those lines written. That's all that's on it. There's no text. There's no chapter one. There's no, here's the story of so-and-so. There's no famous people. It's just a blank page, or a virtually blank page. But what many people do not realize is that blank page represents four centuries. There are 400 years between the ending of the story of the Old Testament and the beginning of the story of the New Testament. And did you notice in the scripture reading this morning, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul points out that when Christ came, it was the perfect time. In the fullness of time, Paul said. That word fullness is interesting. It's a very generic word, has several different definitions, but all of them really fit into what Paul may have had in mind when he said that. For example, the word fullness, as it's used there, carries with it the idea of of a boat or something you carry things in, and when it is full, it is at its capacity to move things. You bring a boat to its fullness of capacity, and now it's ready to, to go. And you can see how that might play into what Paul meant in that verse. But probably more what Paul had in mind was this definition. That word also means that when something had been said, it was now being completed. Or when something had been anticipated, now it was being brought about. When that anticipation was full, if you want to think of it that way, that's when Christ came. It's just interesting to think about the fact that Jesus did not appear on the scene at just some random time. Several years ago, I was in a a class, and the professor was talking, thankfully not about my class, but about a class he had taught before, where he was talking about these things, about things in the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of Jesus and all those sorts of things. And, and somebody raised their hand in the class and said, don't you think the Jews should have seen him coming? And just off the cuff, the professor jokingly said, yeah, especially since he'd been counting down time all the way to the year zero. 
And the little girl said, you know, I've never thought about that before. Now, some of you will never get that. Some of you will get it later and some of you go, I've never thought about that. They weren't counting time down. They were just counting time. But they missed him. How did they miss him? And how did they miss him when everything seemed to be perfectly in place? What I want to do this morning in this lesson is three very simple things. First, we're going to look at some changing things from world history that set the scene for Christ coming as well as the church being established, being at just the absolute perfect time. Then we're going to narrow the scope a little bit and notice some things that changed in the Jewish religion from the end of the Old Testament that affect what we see or affect what we see in the New Testament times. And then we're going to see some practical applications. This is more than just a history lesson, I hope. I hope we see some things that are very practical to us that give us some encouragement from that very silent period. You remember last week we mentioned that chronologically the Old Testament ends basically in Nehemiah. That's the last chronological book. Well, pure history, secular history can tell us that that story ends in about 425 B.C. And probably the book was written down no later than 400 B.C. The New Testament story picks up with the coming of John the Baptist. And then, of course, the coming of Christ. About 5 or 6 B.C. So basically, from 400 B.C. to, let's just say, the year 1, there is no recorded message from heaven. You don't have prophets who wrote their message down by inspiration. There's nothing. It's silent. But what happened? What happened is fascinating. And what happened shows us God's perfect timing. First of all, think with me for a little while about world history. Now, if you're not a history person, don't worry. This is not going to be dry. I hope it is. It's my fault. No, it's, not, it's not anybody else's fault but mine. But what makes this amazing is we know these things to be true, not just from world history, but because God had told us what would happen. Turn your Old Testament to the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 2. It's a story you were probably taught in Sunday school growing up from one of the youngest of ages. Because in Daniel chapter 2, you have a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream or a vision. And it's that vision of the statue. We'll, we'll read the actual dream itself in just a moment. But this dream must have meant something to Nebuchadnezzar. must have terrified him, or at least made him think a lot, because you remember, he called in all the, the experts, the wise people, the astronomers and everything, and said, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And the wise men basically say, have you lost your mind? Nobody can do that. Nobody can tell the dream and the interpretation. If you tell us the dream, then we'll interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar's not going there. And so he's going to have all of them killed. And then Daniel is brought in. And when Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel, can you tell me the dream and the interpretation? Daniel very wisely says, I can't, but there's a God in heaven who can't. And he begins to tell the dream. Look in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. Now pause there for a second. Can you just picture Nebuchadnezzar's face at this point? He probably thinks Daniel's going to make this up just to save his own neck. And now he's saying, you saw, O king, a great image. And Nebuchadnezzar's probably going, jaw on the floor. That is what I saw. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away 
so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And you remember then that Daniel goes on to interpret the dream. Tell him what each part of that dream means. But in many ways, the key to the entire interpretation is when Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, you are the head of gold. In other words, start the clock. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Which, by the way, I've always wondered what Nebuchadnezzar's face was like at that point. I like this part of the interpretation. The head of gold, I like that. But Daniel goes on to tell him that each of those portions represents a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar's will be the head of gold, very powerful, but it won't last forever. In fact, later in this very same book, the book of Daniel, you see that come about. At the end of Daniel chapter 5, you remember that's the story of the handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar is the king of, of Babylon now. And he's having this very arrogant feast and talking about how wonderful he is. And all of a sudden, a hand begins to write on the wall. These weird words, mene, mene, tiku, you parson. And what, what in the world does that mean? Well, you've been weighed in the balance. And you've been found wanting. Daniel 5, I believe it's verse 30. And your kingdom will be taken away from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. Historians usually say the Medo-Persians. Daniel 5 ends by telling us that very night, that's exactly what happened. If Nebuchadnezzar was to be the head of gold, start the clock, then that middle part, that second part, was to be the Medes and the Persians. In this very same book, that's what happened. We have to go to secular history to see what happened next, but... Any of us who have gone beyond about 7th or 8th grade know what happened next. Because the Greeks overtook that empire. And the Greeks were very important. Remember Alexander the Great being the, the most important leader of that uh, that empire. The Macedonian Empire or the Greek Empire. His father started, Philip. But, but Alexander runs over the Medes and the Persians. And you remember that famous story from history. We're not sure if it's true or not. But where Alexander weeps because there wasn't anything more to conquer. He, he conquered the known world. But even more important than that. When the Greeks overtook a, a land, they brought in a very common language. They said, you can keep your own stuff, but not your language. You're going to speak what we speak. You're going to speak Greek. We know it today as Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E. It's a very specific, but also a very picturesque language, commonly called the Greek of the commoners, or the Greek of commerce. Guess what language the New Testament is written in? Koine Greek. The language that everybody in the world knew, the known world. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, or when Peter spoke in Jerusalem, they could speak one language, and everybody would understand it. Which, by the way, makes the miracle in Acts chapter 2 even more amazing. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter, Peter speaks, but all the people are going, wait a minute, we're hearing these people speak in our own language. They're wondering why they're not speaking Hebrew, because everybody there is Jews, or why they're not speaking Greek, because everybody knows Greek. They're speaking in our own native dialect. But everybody in the known world spoke one language. But the Greeks didn't last forever. The Romans absorbed and conquered them. And the Romans brought very important things. Philosophy, architecture, that's wonderful. But for our concerns, the Romans brought two very important things. You've heard the famous statement before, all roads lead to Rome. That was actually true. They made sure that however vast their kingdom or empire was, that you could get on a road, and eventually that road was going to wind its way back to Rome. They wanted to know, you to know that no matter where you were, you were connected to them. And on those roads, they made sure to include a postal system. Why do you think we have the letter to the Romans? 
the letter to the Ephesians. The letters to the seven churches of Asia, the book of Revelation. Because the Romans had basically, for that time, perfected a postal system. It was the most efficient way to get information to people. But also, you remember, the Romans were very uh, set in their ways on having peace. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Sure, there were skirmishes in the empire. Any any empire that vast is going to have little dust-ups and uprisings. But do you remember when the people were wanting to put Jesus to death? What was it that made Pilate get all upset when he saw a tumult was rising? Because they didn't like unrest. They didn't like things that weren't peaceful. So think with me just for a second. You have a time when an entire vast empire is basically at peace. You have a time when an empire is connected in that world as best as possibly can be by roads, by a postal system, and every common person speaks the same language. I wonder why Jesus came when he came. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And Daniel had said that's exactly what was going to happen in Daniel chapter 2. Because in the days of these kings, the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, we know it as a church, which will never be destroyed. But did you also notice in that prophecy or that that dream, that interpretation, that these other kingdoms will be crushed and blown to dust? We can still go to Rome and see some buildings, but there's no Roman Empire. We can still go to Athens and see some, some impressive ruins, because there is no Greek Empire. There for sure is no Medo-Persian Empire. There's no Babylonian Empire. But the church will never end. The church will stand forever. God was working throughout world history to bring about the perfect time for the coming of His Son and the establishment of the church. It's remarkable that on that one blank page in your Bible, all of that unfolds to bring about the perfect timing for that to occur. But with that as kind of the big picture view, well, let's, let's bring our lens down. Let's think specifically about the Jewish people. You remember, they're, obviously they are very clearly the most important people in the Old Testament. They're the ones through whom the Messiah will come. That's who the story focuses on. But have you ever thought about the fact that there are some things we see in the New Testament among the Jewish people that we didn't see in the Old Testament? And there are a lot of changes that occur among the people. One that's not on your handout, I've got just some places to write some in. One that's not on there is there's a changeover because of the empires to where the Jews are no longer primarily an agricultural people and they're more of a commerce people. That's one minor change, but it's true that they begin to sort of blend their economy in a lot of ways. But there are some much more important changes that we see in the New Testament or we see that lead to some very important things in the New Testament. I want to share with you six that all start with the letter S for easy remembrance. Number one are the Samaritans. Have you ever noticed you never see Samaritans in the Old Testament? Never. But do they not play very important roles in the New Testament? I mean, our children, one of their favorite stories is the story of the good Samaritan, right? John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Who is she? She is a Samaritan woman. Jesus tells so many stories that make Samaritans the heroes of the story. Who are these people? When the Old Testament Israelites were carried into captivity, or when the conquering nations came in and began to displace them, these were the children and the offspring of Jews who intermarried with those conquering nations. And to the Jews, they were considered, in their own words, half-breeds. Even dogs, they would call them at times. There was a cultural problem. There was also a religious problem. Remember in John chapter 4, as Jesus is having that conversation with the woman at the well, she asked that question. We worship on Mount Gerizim. 
the Jews worship in Jerusalem. Basically, ask which one's right. You see, the Samaritans no longer went to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They had built their own. They built their own temple, this other mountain on the northern part of the kingdom in Gerizim. And Jesus responds, basically, I'm paraphrasing, basically by saying, on this matter, the Jews have it right, but the day is coming when it's not going to matter where you go. What's going to matter is you worship God in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4 and verse 24. But the Samaritans are a, a new thing. You don't see them in the Old Testament. But now you have this great contention in the New Testament, so much so that John specifically tells us the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a change. Another major change are the synagogues. Have you ever thought about the fact that you never see a synagogue in the Old Testament? Not a one. But they are all over the New Testament. How many times do you read about, for example, Paul, as well as the other uh, early Christian uh, missionaries, the first place they went when they came to a new place to teach was in the synagogues. Well, what are these things? Because you don't see them in the Old Testament. Remember, the Jews were supposed to go to the temple to worship. When you're in exile, that's a problem. When you're taken away from your homeland and put under foreign rule, that's a very difficult thing to follow. And so as sort of a a secondary way of doing things, the Jews come up with a system of local, smaller places to worship. But they were not just houses of worship. There are places of training within the culture. They're in exile. They're no longer at the center. They're no longer in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. How are we going to keep our pure culture? You stay close together. And you stay near people who know that culture. Do you remember the story in the book of John of the man who's born blind? And they're trying to ask him, who did, who healed you? And they went to his parents. And his parents basically said, we, we, we don't know who did this. And John specifically tells us, for they were fearful of being put out of the synagogue. To be cut off from the synagogue was to be cut off from common life, from the culture. You were part of that, that local family, that local place where everything came together, where your culture was taught, where your religion was taught, which, by the way, were the same to them, where your language was, was emphasized. And it also became a place of, of commerce. Jews could do commerce with one another. It was, it was the central, a central part of their religion. And so, in the New Testament, it became a very natural place for Jesus at first, but then also for Paul and others to begin to spread the message. And by the way, it also became a very natural thing if Paul or Peter or someone else could come to a city and find a synagogue and convert the people who were already local in that place. Guess what that then became? The local church, the local congregation. It became a natural thing to where they had been used to this. And it was a very natural change to simply change from Sabbath to Sunday and continue with your family, continue with those people. And continue to remain close. That was a major change. And something that plays a very important role in the New Testament. Number three is the Septuagint. Yeah, you're going, okay, I knew the first two. What in the world is this thing? The Septuagint is the translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew. But remember, by the time the Greeks come along, they make everybody speak Greek. During this silent period, the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew into the common language of the people. The Greek language. Why is this important? It's important for two reasons. First, it's important because scholars and those who study these kind of things can tell us that most of the time, especially Jesus, but when Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others quoted from the Old Testament, they quoted from this translation. 
Not from the original Hebrew language. They quoted from this translation, which basically gives us the, the importance of the fact that it's okay to have the Bible in our own language. Aren't you thankful that God didn't say, go back and read Hebrew and Greek? I'm pretty thankful for that, especially Hebrew. <laughs> I can do a little bit of Greek, but there's no, no Hebrew for sure. You can have an English. Our Russian brothers and sisters don't have to read English. They can read Russian. They can read Spanish, German, and so forth. But it's also important. Because as the message was spreading in the first century, the people didn't have to go back and learn Hebrew to try to figure out if what was being taught was true. Remember Acts chapter 17, the noble Bereans searched the scriptures daily to see where these things were so. Folks, this is what they were searching. They didn't have to go back and learn the Hebrew language to figure out if what Peter, or excuse me, Paul was saying was true. They went back to this translation and said, okay, here's what the Old Testament says. Is what they're saying about this Jesus, this Messiah, is that true? By the way, many times you'll see in commentaries and other things, the letters LXX, that's this. Because Septuagint comes from the number 70. There were 70 translators who made this translation. A major change. An important change even for us as we study the Old Testament. Number four is a revolt known as the Solutions. This group of people were totally bent on destroying Judaism and the worship of the God of heaven. Probably the most infamous leader was a guy named Antiochus. Antiochus IV. He gave himself the nickname Epiphanes. Epiphany. God. Pretty good nickname to give yourself, don't you think? If you want to be totally arrogant and destroy religion, you give yourself basically the nickname, I'm from God. This is the man you may have heard the story of before who did not just want to kill the Jews, he wanted to embarrass them, and so he actually took the blood of a pig and sprinkled it all over the temple. If you know anything about the Jewish religion, you know that's about as low as you can possibly get. He took not just blood, but the blood of a pig and desecrated the temple with it. Now, why is this important? It's because the Jews finally got the guts to fight back. Under the leadership of a family named the Maccabees, the Jews united and drove these people out. And from that point forward, the Jews were united under the idea of let's make sure we follow the one God of heaven. We're going to stand pure in that one belief. They're going to mess up on a lot of other things, but they're going to get that one right. They're going to unite under that one thing. And there's a unity to be found then within the Jewish people that had not been seen for a long, long time. And because they are now united, when Jesus comes to speak to them as being the Son of God, which in their mind made him equal with God, why do you think they didn't like it? They were united on the idea there is one God. And now someone's challenging, in their thinking, that line of reasoning. Of course, he wasn't. But in their line of reasoning, he was. The solution result. Number five, very quickly, is the growth of sects. You ever notice you never see a Pharisee in the Old Testament? You ever thought about the fact you never read about the Sadducees in the Old Testament? Or the Zealots? Or the Essenes? Or these other people, it's, it's just, they're just not there. And all of a sudden, you come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Pharisees. You go, who are these people? Where they where they come from? They come up, they grow up during these silent years as the Jews begin to try to interpret the Old Testament. It's interesting that Jesus would point out their false teachings or their, or their false ways of looking at things, and they didn't like that because they were fighting for earthly power. They held the idea that Jesus, excuse me, that God was going to raise up another David, an earthly king. 
Anybody who challenged that, they weren't going to like that very much. But you never read about Pharisees and Sadducees in the Old Testament. But during this silent period, as they interpret the Old Testament, they agree on the fact there's one God, but they disagree on a lot of other things. And Jesus has to try to get them to see it's not about these peripheral things. It's about being true to both the teachings and the attitudes of Scripture. And number six is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. Have you ever thought about the fact you never read about that in the Old Testament? You never see the Sanhedrin, sometimes called the, the Jewish Supreme Court. It's called the Sanhedrin because there were 70 members, technically 71. There were 70 plus the high priest. They were meant to decide civil cases among their own people. How often do you see Jesus, Paul, and others being called before the Sanhedrin and having to defend themselves, having to defend the faith, and having to stand in boldness? All of these things occur between the ending of the Old Testament and the rising of the New Testament. And they help us to see the picture. Because you put all of those things together, and it was just the right time for Jesus to come, both in positive ways, such as the Jews believing uh, in being united, but also in some negative ways where he was going to challenge their thinking on some things that they were fighting about, arguing about, and fussing about. Now, some of you are going... I didn't think I was coming to World History 101 when I came to church this morning. I can't believe I came to worship. I'm going to sit through talking about people, you know, words I can't pronounce and Nebuchadnezzar and all these people. And I mean, Alexander the Great, I'm in the Bible. So what's the point of all this? Is there anything we can possibly learn? Oh, I think there are. Can I give you three very brief takeaways? Number one, if nothing else, we can learn from this that our God is in control of history. Our God is in control of history. When Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, there was not a soul alive who would have thought that his kingdom would fall, much less that other kingdoms, that a kingdom powerful enough to take that one over would then fall. Nobody would have thought that. But God knew it all along. God knew all along that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was going to last a little while, but not forever. That the Medes and the Persians were going to last a little while, but not forever. That somebody not even born yet, named Alexander, was going to be the greatest uh, military leader the world had ever seen, but he wasn't going to last forever, and that kingdom was going to be absorbed, and just happened to work it out to where, in a time where there was peace, and a language, and a postal system, and a road system, just at that time, God would bring about His Son. God is in control of history. Folks, sometimes we look at the world around us, and we see places in the world, we wonder, how in the world can things keep going that way? How can people in that nation or or that place continue to follow this military dictator or these completely evil people? Folks, we got to remember, our God is still in control of history. He knows exactly what's going on. We may not understand everything that happens. Read the book of Habakkuk if you don't believe that. But God still knows what's going on. Proverbs 21 and verse 1, The king's heart is a stream of water, literally a, a, a ditch of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 32. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God knows what's going on. And our God is still on his throne. Yes, we need to be concerned about the world in which we live. I'm not saying we shouldn't watch the news or not care. But Christians should understand that good or bad that happens, God's hand is still in control of everything. Number two, the main takeaway in my, my opinion is this. God's timing is always perfect. This is what we've emphasized several times throughout the lesson. 
But it's the reason we chose Galatians 4 as our text. In the fullness of time, God did this. Why was God quiet, if you please, for 400 years? Because that's exactly what needed to happen. There needed to be this silent period for people to understand how all of this possibly could have worked out. You and I sometimes do not understand why things go on like they do. Or why sometimes maybe things seem as rushed as they are. But God's timetable is not our timetable. You ever thought about how often we are told in Scripture to wait? And how rarely in Scripture we're told to rush? I think God knows this pretty well, don't you? God knows we want to rush through everything. But God tells us to wait. He's not on our timetable. God sees the full picture of history. And God's timing is perfect. That's not to say that we avoid work. We continue to work. What it does mean is that we need to continue to seek His guidance. And do our best not to run ahead of Him. And number three. We are in a silent period. But God's timetable remains perfect. If we learn nothing else from this little history lesson this morning, we need to realize that we are on a much longer silent period than what is represented by that blank page in your Bible. That was only 400 years. Folks, Jesus ascended back into heaven, and the inspired writers stopped writing the New Testament a little before the year 100. Over 1,900 years ago, there has never been another word of inspiration written since the book of Revelation was finished. Almost five times as long we have been in a silent period compared to that time between the Old and New Testaments. But there will come a day when there is a shout from heaven. And whenever that day is or happens to be, it will be just the right time. And the reason for that is very simple. It's because that will be the time that God has ordained it to happen. You see, the Jews weren't counting down years from something thousand to one to zero. They didn't know when all this was going to happen. They, they couldn't say, well, it's, it's the year 50 B.C. I guess we better start getting ready. They, they couldn't see all that. But once they began to piece things together, some of them understood it. When you and I look back, we, are, we stand amazed at the timing of God in that, if you please, silent period. There's never going to be another word of inspiration written. But when that shout from heaven comes, it will be at exactly the right time. Because it will be the God-ordained time for it to happen. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. He has given each one of us time. We don't know how much, but we know He has given us now. We are not told when Jesus will return. But we're promised He will. And we know it will be just the right time. But there are some who on that day will think, this can't be the right time. And the only reason they'll have that excuse is because they weren't ready. God has given each one of us now. God has given us just the right time if we will take advantage of it. And if we will trust Him and love Him enough to say, God, I give you my life. I'm turning from my sins. I'm confessing Jesus as Lord, the one who came in the fullness of time. And I'm willing to be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of my sins. In the little bit of time that takes, 
God will save you. And maybe this morning you are a Christian, but you haven't been living faithfully. In the time it takes simply to, to come down to let us pray with you and encourage you, your loving God will forgive. If you will give him that time and that heart and that effort, will you do so while we stand and sing to encourage?